Hello everybody, it is me, Kinsey, host of Thinking is Cool, and I have a question. One year from now, do you think we'll still be talking about Elon Musk buying Twitter? My bet is no. In fact, I'm not sure we'll even remember this story six months from now. But one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, there is a story that we will be talking about. And that story is what's going on in Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine happened about two months ago. Everybody posted their infographics, everybody posted those GoFundMe campaigns, and then, at least in the Western world, we kind of moved on, which is really, really not good because this isn't just a headline. Russia invading Ukraine is a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift that is coming after years of escalation that for the most part, and I'm guilty myself as well, we just haven't paid all that much attention to. So today I want to do my best to understand where we go from here, because unlike a headline, this is the kind of story that is going to have lasting implications, not only in Russia and in Ukraine and in that part of our world, but also all over the world. What happens in one country is not insulated to that country. So I want to do my best to understand what comes next? Where do we go from here? What is the responsibility of the United States? What is my personal responsibility? Is the news fatigue real and how do we combat it? But most importantly, how did we get here? What is the context of this invasion and how are we best interpreting that context two months out? So with that in mind, I have brought in a friend who is incredibly bright, incredibly smart, has spent a ton of time, as you will hear about in just a moment, covering the Ukraine crisis. His name is Marshall Koslov. I just love this conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. I hope that you learn the way that I did uh, because there was a lot that I didn't understand about what is happening in Ukraine and how we got here. This interview helped me to understand it, but I'm gonna do my best to continue to learn and to read and to try to get even more context because this is important stuff. Um, so I hope you enjoy the interview and uh, let's get things started. Marshall, would you mind introducing yourself? Tell me a little bit more about what you do. Hey, so my name's Marshall Kozloff. Uh, I was saying before we started the episode, I do a bunch of things. So this is like a good exercise in self-actualization. Like, who am I? So I do a bunch of things that are relevant to this conversation. So I follow at a think tank. It's called the Hudson Institute. I host a podcast there where I interview experts on foreign policy issues. I co-host a show called The Realignment, where I just did a 30-day daily interview series on the war in Ukraine. I co-host slash contribute to my friend and your mutual friend Sagar's Breaking Points YouTube channel where we talk about this actively as it's happening. And then finally, I just started contributing to the recount on uh, their Twitch stream and everything. So 15 different levels of that, but they all basically come down to, I like talking to smart people about what think, about what's happening right now because we're in a super confusing <laughs> really momentous like moment. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. So I appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy, I imagine, schedule to come on and chat with me today. Um, you know, we have a, a lot to consider today. When I emailed you to, to do this interview, essentially what I said was, I wanna talk about Ukraine. I have kind of refined that point a little bit, uh, but I still want to keep things at a high level. I want to get really at the the context of, of the whole idea of becoming a little bit fatigued by a story 
that is still so impactful, that is still impacting people on a daily basis in ways that we can scarcely imagine from where we're both sitting right now. So that's the goal today is just to get at the kind of the the root context of the Ukraine story, uh, if we can even still call it a story. I think this has kind of graduated beyond that to some degree, but that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to start by understanding this coverage that you just mentioned, 30 straight days, I think you said. It was like a, a month of coverage about Ukraine, doing interviews with top thinkers, um, with people who have a ton of political insight, geopolitical insight, economic insight. And that's crazy. I mean, you pulled off what I, I think could only be described as like a, a heroic effort here covering this war on a near daily basis is insane in terms of the actual manpower that it takes to pull it off. But also just to commit to doing something for that long is kind of a feat in this day and age, especially in the media world in which we both operate. So I want to understand to start what inspired you to take up the mantle to commit to doing this coverage for so long um, when the, the news cycle, as we both know today, is shrinking every single day. Why commit to doing this? Why commit to the daily basis? And uh, what did you learn along the way? Yeah, so to provide context, this was on my Realignment podcast channel. And I don't know how you are with reading comments, but I always read comments. And what happened was the word started, I think I was on breaking points or something where the audience is like not really in agreement with me on these type of issues. And I said something hawkish. I said something like, hey, like the US should be providing more weapons to the Ukrainians. We should back Ukraine, not with like boots on the ground, but we should be very concertedly backing Ukraine. And a commenter was like, oh, there he goes, the podcaster over there. I look forward to you reporting from the front lines and actually doing something. And I actually took that in good faith, which is, yeah, like there's this moment which is so important. I'm saying it's so important, but I'm just sitting, just doing random podcast episodes. I did an episode on like the founding of PayPal and like AOC right before that. So just totally unrelated. So I just took that. I was like, you know what? Like I get paid just to talk to people. Um, through a nonprofit grant. So I don't even have to care about views. So why don't I just do what it is that I'm actually good at, which is interviewing people, and just talk for 30 days, um, roughly 30 days, for, for an hour, an episode with folks. And I think what also was so helpful here is I really think we should understand like Ukraine as a, not just like you said, it's not just like a news event, it's a moment. And I think a moment that's going to ruin, we'll get into this, I think, define the next 20, 30 years of how our generation actually interacts with the world, domestically, internationally, et cetera. And I think that, well, you know, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. I think you're like, you're a year or two younger than me. So, like, you know, we were in early elementary school. And I think, wow, if I could have been my age and spent those first 30 days after 9-11 happened, so September 12th to October 12th, just interviewing experts in the field I and my listenership at the time would have been so much better able to navigate those 20 years. So that's what I really thought of here. Like I didn't do a, okay, so this Russian battalion group is at this location on this day. I really think their ideas and episodes that are going to stand, I think honestly stand like the test of time when you're trying to do that. Yeah, I think this is such a compelling way to approach something that feels so massive. I think that was one of the big takeaways that when I was speaking to friends and family members in the wake of, I believe it was what, like February 28th, March 1st, somewhere around then when the invasion actually happened, there was this almost disbelief that this was actually taking place. And I, it was like this cognitive dissonance that I couldn't quite understand because to your point, we are the generation that grew up with 9-11. My entire childhood was pretty much characterized by the war on terror. 
And it, it just seemed so unbelievable that this was happening, that a land war was happening that wasn't the war on terror. And I just couldn't quite understand what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to act. Was I to go about my regular regular everyday life? I launched this channel and I felt so icky doing that because it was like, well, I should be doing something else. But what can I do? You know, I'm not the president. I am not in the armed forces. Like there's only so much that I can do from where I stand in my position. But I really like your framing of this, of there is something that you can do. And that is to be informed or in your case, and perhaps in my case, to talk to people, to spread information that's truthful and accurate and insightful so that we can go about the rest of our lives making really informed decisions. I think that's a really, really um, insightful way of, of understanding the idea of personal responsibility when a geopolitical crisis strikes because it can be really, really kind of dumbfounding when you have no idea what you're supposed to do next. We're all kind of just like in a fugue state, you know, like, well, we'll figure it out. Um, But I think that's an interesting perception. Now, with with doing all of this coverage, surely I imagine you did a ton of research. You probably learned a lot about the the years long history, decades long history um, between these two countries. But in terms of the bigger picture, what was most surprising for you to learn in pulling off all of this Ukraine coverage? Yeah. I like how you focused on big picture insights, because obviously this is the first big land war of our entire millennial and even the Gen Z listener right, cohort lives. So every single thing was new. So thinking about, oh, hey, like how does a no-fly zone work? That's a new idea for us. Um, and we could get into that a bit later. But I think the big picture thing that really mattered and that I think everyone really needs to take away from and this is why I think it's actually especially important that you and I as millennials like podcast and talk about this thing because I think we actually have the ability to speak to our cohort from a position of just like empathy in the sense that the world that started Feb- in late February is so different than the world of the past 20 years. So like the actual like 20 year period um, war on terror, um, September 11th, all of that. Um, it's It's a world where, you know, like September 11th was 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 evil. It was terrible. Um, I supported us intervening in Afghanistan afterwards. I was in fifth grade, so it didn't really matter what I think. But like, I didn't support the Iraq War then. I don't support the. I didn't support the Iraq War now. But that was a story that was fundamentally defined by us. So it's like, okay, we're attacked on 9/11. What do we do? Okay, it's December 2001. Osama bin Laden has escaped into Pakistan, most likely. What do we do? Do we stay in Afghanistan? Do we rebuild? Do we turn into a democracy? Do we seek to prevent the Taliban from coming back into power? Those are debates that matter then. It's 2002. Okay, like we think that there's a broader opportunity for the U.S. to push back against threats like Saddam Hussein, like Iran, like North Korea. What do we do? That answer was start the war in Iraq. Once again, a terrible idea. But the point is, is that every single thing that I've discussed from September 12th onwards was fundamentally about us and what we do or what we do not do for good or for ill. So the key thing here is what was so hard for people in my generation, especially people, and I think we both speak to people in this audience who came away from not just like the foreign policy stuff, but like the financial crisis and the student debt crisis and all these issues with a high degree of cynicism about our system. This was the first time that this largely wasn't a story about us in the sense that you see folks say things like, why won't the U.S. give Putin an off-ramp. Why is the U.S. pushing so hard? 
a line you often see from critics on, frankly, like the far left and far right of what's happening in Ukraine right now is the U.S. policy is to fight until the last dead Ukrainian because we want to have it be a proxy war where Russia gets bogged down the same way they were bogged down in Afghanistan during the 1980s. And we're just going to do that. And that's immoral. Here's the thing. That story, which is a story which I think will make a lot of sense to people who are obviously rightfully pushing back against the war on terror and its excesses, what that story misses is the actual Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians do not want peace with Moscow right now. There's actually like literally nothing we can do as America to say, hey, Ukrainians, stop fighting. Like obviously we could stop giving weapons to the Ukrainians, but guess who would still give weapons? The Poles, the, Latvi- the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, Ukraine's neighbors, the European countries actually are stepping up in their own way here too, irrespective of what we're doing. So what I really think is so important to take away here is just that we are entering into like a multipolar world. World like That's a like obviously like technical term, but what it just fundamentally means is that the stories of what happens in the world today, they obviously involve us. We're the world's like strongest, biggest superpower. But there's individual agency in other countries and other peoples in ways that just wasn't true after the Cold War. And that's just such a different mentality for people from our generation. Yeah, I really, really appreciate you bringing that up because I have been making this series um, for for a while now about the American dream, what it means to have an American dream in a modern context. And one of the concepts that I've been really, really particularly curious about that I'm not quite sure how to go about yet, so this is helpful context now, is the idea of this almost American savior complex that we as Americans believe that there is some degree of responsibility just by virtue of being America that we have to go out and solve every country's problem. And I think in some ways that responsibility is is, is there for a reason. It makes perfect sense in some regards. We're the, the biggest economy. We are, by many measures, the most powerful country in the world. And I think that it makes sense for that kind of a, a presence to be exported out to the world to solve other geopolitical crises. But at the same time, I mean, we look at Afghanistan, the war on terror, any really insert any Middle Eastern crisis here, right, that America has absolutely bungled it or has tried to export American ideals to a country that's not necessarily looking for American ideals. And this is an interesting way of putting it, this concept that it's not just the American savior complex that exists. There are all sorts of other countries that are going to insert themselves in these crises when need be. And we have to just believe that these are going to work out for for the better. But it it also kind of hints at this this concept of empathy that is really important that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, that there is a certain degree of empathy that other countries, you know, we we can understand empathy among people between people, but among and between countries, it's such a bigger scale and the empathy takes shape in such different ways, you know, such different means of extending empathy to countries that are really going through it. Um, that, that to me is going to be, I think, a marker of the next several, you know, weeks of content that I make about trying to understand this savior complex. Maybe it's not so, uh, I don't know, maybe it's not so condescending as I had originally thought that it might be. It's, it, it's actually kind of like makes sense, you know, if it wasn't us, it might be somebody else. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting, I'll, so I think the word empathy is important, but if we're looking at what Eastern European NATO members especially, so the Baltic countries, Poland, they're not doing what they're doing purely because of empathy and emotion right. and feeling. <laughs> they are doing this for very like hard power reasons. Like They explicitly believe that if Russia easily takes Ukraine, they are next. 
So once again, like that, that's that's another thing that's very different from like this post Cold War period, where if you think about the 1990s, right? So like when you and I are alive, but like we're not like cognizant of these things. Look at, for example, like Black Hawk Down in Somalia um, in 1993. Like th- we were there because the U.S. was attempting to like solve a food crisis. Like unironically, like it was a humanitarian intervention. Um, that was an example of what like empathy looks like. Like that's that's empathy. Like that's 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 like saying, hey, like we have these resources, we have this power, we can use those resources and use this power for very little cost. We discovered there was actually a very high cost, and that's why we pulled out after Black Hawk Down after eighteen plus um, soldiers died. But like that's what that's like the empathy version. But what's happening in Ukraine is like a very direct like interest based situation where countries are saying, hey, Russia sees themselves as fundamentally aligned against the West, um, the type of claims that Russia is making about Ukraine apply just as seriously to other Eastern European countries. So when Putin gives this big speech when the war starts, and he talks about how there are Russian speakers who are in danger in Ukraine, well, there are also Russian speakers who claim they're discriminated against in the, in, in the Baltic countries. There are also territorial claims that he referenced as in, well, he's, you know, he talks about how, um, you know, the biggest geopolitical mistake of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. But he also talks about the Russian Empire. And guess used to be a part of the Russian Empire? Poland, the Baltic countries, Finland. There's this whole conversation now. Sagar and I had this big debate about whether or not we should let NATO, um, let Finland and Sweden into NATO. That's a, that's a question which actually has changed with this war because up until this war, the Finns actually didn't want to join NATO, but they want to join NATO now because they see this war and they think, okay, we could be next. So like, that's the really, I think, I think that's just the interesting point here. And then just to get real quick to the um, savior complex thing. I think the key takeaway here should be about how do we respond to a world that's imperfect, right? Because that's that's the that's the underlying thing. Because obviously, like especially with our generation, there's the there's the there's I think a useful but also unproductive conversation about the war in Iraq, which is we wanted oil and Bush lied and people died, and like the, I think those narratives are very complicated and I think not quite accurate. But there's something directionally that they speak to. But what I think the bigger issue from a how should it shape the way we think of the rest of this century, like when we're alive and cognizant. Like, so how should like a future politician who's listening to this episode think about it is, we actually thought that we had the ability to fundamentally remake Iraq into something different. That is what actually drove that. So like if you're thinking to yourself like, okay, like why did we stay in Afghanistan after let's say 2003? It wasn't just purely about security concerns. It was this idea that, hey, like we can remake Afghanistan as a state. So I think that's an example of a overly idealized savior complex. I mean, George W. Bush, his second inaugural address was actually, it literally stated the central aim of American foreign policy is to spread democracy around the world. Um, that was very debatable about at the time, and that's something that almost no one right or left agrees with now. So the key thing of what's happening in Ukraine, and I think this also applies to Taiwan, to Finland, to Sweden, I think very much what we're trying to do is preserve the status quo using the power that we have. So, hey, Ukraine, they're a democracy. They want to be free. This idea that countries could invade other countries and take territory. Because once again, when we invaded Iraq, we invade Iraq, but we didn't turn it into the 51st state. Putin is invading another country and making that country part of his own. 
So once again, Iraq is a very bad immoral decision, but it's important we understand how these decisions are fundamentally different. Um, so my point here is what we should be doing is saying, hey, like we're not out to regime change Russia. We're not pursuing our sanctions policy because we're going to magically have the Russians overthrow and become a perfect democracy. What we are doing is saying, hey, the way that we can prevent Russia from invading other countries, the way you can preserve Ukrainian democracies by supporting them. So that's, I think, the big, that, that, was, that was long-winded, but I think it's important to give that setup, which is that is how this is different from 2006 when Bush is speaking and today. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, obviously, the world itself looks very different, both in terms of the, the geopolitical fabric that makes up our world, but also in terms of the people who are making the decisions, the people in power, uh, their ambitions, their ideals, their standards, all vastly different. You bring up an interesting idea about uh, specific interests that countries might have. You know, Finland has a very obvious interest in in making moves or not making moves right now. You know, obviously that, that one makes a ton of sense. I want to understand a little bit better the American interest, because primarily people who are watching this and listening to this are living in America. What was the the interest that America had in intervening, however it did or did not, early in the Ukraine crisis versus how it might have changed by, you know, day 30 of your coverage? How can you can you explain or give any context as to what the ambition for America was or what the goal for America was when this first started versus today? Yeah, so great question. So I want to start real quick with like our overarching interest because this whole debate of like why does what happened in Ukraine matter for the US? I think we should just look at 20th century history where we weren't alive, but it shaped our world. Two times in the 20th century, Europe went to war in a corner of Europe. So in the Balkans in World War One, and then in Poland during World War Two. Both times we were inevitably pulled into that war. Not only were we pulled into that war, but tens of millions of people died. In both cases, the world economy was fundamentally reshaped. We saw our gas prices spike here. We saw a huge supply chain crunch. Like th th This is all very tied together. So what our broad interest is we want Europe to be as peaceful as maximally possible, given our capabilities and given our ambitions. So Biden rolled out very early, and I think he was proper to roll this out, putting U.S. troops into NATO, uh, NATO troops led by the U.S., obviously, into the country because that would just constitute too much of a red line for Putin. And, and this is him being good on foreign policy when it comes to his political instincts, there was no consensus in the U.S. in favor of that, especially before the actual invasion started. If we'd put troops in and then Putin would have invaded, the obvious story would have been the U.S. started this by provoking him. So the Biden policy was a very good policy, which was, hey, like, let's back the Ukrainians. Let's have their back. Let's have all this intelligence. Let's leak the intelligence about the thing. Let's claim Putin wants to invade, but let's not over overgo there. Here's the thing, though, and this is an interesting part of the story. U.S. intelligence was super accurate up until the war started. This is another thing which is weird for our millennial generation, which is like Sagar and I got in this huge fight about like whether or not we should listen to intelligence. And he was a person who said, I don't think Putin is going to invade because I don't trust US intelligence agencies after they said that Kabul would hold out for longer than six months last fall, last fall after um, they got the war in Iraq wrong. He was just like, as a millennial, I will fundamentally start with the default assumption that they are not correct about things. Versus my perspective is, I think that we should just pick and we should just do this as we go. And there's just like a real difference between saying like, what do we think someone is going to do versus what are we going to do? 
So to the interest question and the intelligence, the intelligence said, though, after that war started, that Kiev would fall in four days. So what we underestimated in our policy was we did not think the Ukrainians were going to be able to hold out even past that first week. And they did. Um, they did. We put the massive sanctions on. So what's really changed now that we're, you know, 30 days, two plus months into this is that this actually is about how can we ensure Ukrainian victory, quote unquote, versus how do we minimize how much they are defeated? Because I think the key thing to really articulate here is that from my perspective, victory means that Ukraine's national sovereignty is maintained. And Putin does not accomplish his broader goal, which was articulated as abolishing the Ukrainian state to some degree, placing a replacement government, probably Viktor Yushchenko, who is a Putin ally in charge of the country. Um, that's that's a really important thing to think about. So now it's actually about victory as opposed to how do we minimize how catastrophic this defeat is. So that's why the CIA was saying, Zelensky, you need to get out of um, Kiev now and establish a government in exile, probably in London, a la World War II. That's what our goal was the first four days. That's not the goal anymore. So with with that in mind and, you know, obviously useful context as to how those goals change, where do you see this going? And I understand this is probably an impossible question to answer, but given your experience having reported on this for a month plus at this point, where do you see this heading in the next month or beyond that? Yeah, so this is um, everything I'm saying is things I picked up from people who like are actual area experts on this space. But I'll, uh, as, as you and I do, like we're non-expert compilers, so I'll compile thoughts for us here. So the key thing is this war didn't start in February. Um, Ukraine and Russia have been fighting since 2014. There was a war in Eastern Ukraine with separatists, with high casualties, shelling, all sorts of technology for the past eight years. So we should just probably expect the next, this is going to go on for a very long time. Um, there is going to be a high to mid to low level, depending on the season, depending on the energy levels, etc., of very brutal fighting in the east of the country. So once again, people get frustrated when I say things like, I think Ukraine is winning this because they say, but look, there's all this fighting going on. There's still those bigger things. But once again, part of the key contention here is that th- that um, there's this very obvious, f- um, famous like military idea that like war is just politics by other means. So what it's really important to so so as a listener, what you should think about and what you as a host should think about is there is a difference between what's happening on the battlefield tactically and the actual political issue at hand here. Because once again, the political question at hand here is Putin wanted Ukraine to balance away from the West and towards his country. He wanted to challenge the Western-led international order with China to actually have a more world that's less directed by what capitals of Europe and Washington want, in Tokyo, South Korea, et cetera. Those goals are not going to be achieved politically because he had to really, he had to take the country in a week to do that. What's so tough for the Ukrainians now is at a military level, you are still going to have a horrible, horrible, horrible war for a decade. And you're also going to have a Ukraine that's fundamentally severely damaged and it's going to require just incredible amounts of like Western and broader allied um, economic support um, because it's not going to come from Russia. Um, so we're going to have to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars like repairing 
the country because their economy is cratered. The country has a population of 43 million people. Already 7 million people almost have like fled the country. And then another 5 million are internally displaced. So this is a country that's been just fundamentally um, damaged. So we really have to approach this from the perspective of like rebuilding. Like right now, the most important thing we can do is get the Ukrainians aircraft parts and munitions and javelin, anti-tank weapons and stinger anti-aircraft missiles. But for the long term, we have to transition to serious, serious economic and security aid. Yeah. And I think thinking in, in the long term is something that we have, you know, historically gotten very, very bad at doing. We as like a general population, you know, certainly there are very smart people who are making very smart decisions or decisions that are as smart as possible given the limited amount of information that they have. But when we consider the general population's approach to something like a geopolitical crisis of this scale, of this nature, it's not in our nature today as consumers of news and information to be able to say this is going to be a decades long commitment. You said this is going to go on for a very long time. That is like not going to compute, I'm afraid, for a lot of people who are trying to consume information about Ukraine and to understand their personal responsibilities and the responsibilities of the people they vote into office. So I want to understand a little better given your experience having covered this, what is going on in terms of, of news cycle fatigue? I mean, think back to early March. All I saw on Instagram was people posting infographics and GoFundMe campaigns. And now I, I rarely see that, if ever. Um, and that to me, I think, you know, is, is not a perfect indicator, but it's certainly an indicator of some kind that the perception of the general people has shifted. We have quite frankly, lost interest, which is heartbreaking and horrible and like wrong in so many ways, but I think is also a symptom of our broader attention spans just shrinking day by day. So how do you think that the fatigue of this news cycle is taking shape today? Um, I know you you mentioned you had to stop the the daily coverage because that's, I mean, that's not sustainable. You're doing more than is is humanly possible. Um, but in terms of fatigue, I would just love to hear your your perspective. What is this, what is this looking like um, and how do we I think combat the the fatigue that we have in any news cycle with uh, you know reconciling that with the idea that this is a decades long story. This is not going to stop overnight. It didn't it didn't happen overnight. Um, but the the nature of social media and the news today makes it seem that it did. Yeah, I want to offer a, a quick defense of the news consumer because this is actually a very contentious thing that you're hinting at with because um, there are people who are not pro Ukraine. Um, who are anti-American intervention in the country who say things like, this was just a quick virtue-signaling burst of attention, um, and everyone just moved on to the next shiny thing. The reason why Ukraine blew up, not just like literally, but figuratively in American media, is for a, a, to your point, you said this earlier very eloquently, no one expected a land war to start in Europe. Right. So obviously it's not a shocker that everyone's like, whoa, this was not something you were tuned into. There's this kind of depressing tweet by a Ukrainian who they said, you know, I used to say I was Ukrainian and people would say, oh, so are you Russian? And they're like, now everyone's like, oh, so are you from Kharkiv or are you from Dnipro? Because like this has just been like Ukraine is so much in the news negatively that people are just deeply aware. And it's actually like that doesn't feel like a good thing if you're Ukrainian. Um, so the reason everyone was so engaged was because it looked as if the country was going to fall in five days. I'm sure you saw the massacre at Bucha with like literally like dead people in the streets. That could have been the entire country. Zelensky could have been lined up against a wall and shot. That is why people were actively, actively, actively engaged day to day. I was addicted. I would wake up. Um, you know, my, my, my partner literally had me like t- took away my phone. 
um, at night because I would stay up until one, just doom scrolling, watching horrible videos. And I do the same thing when I woke up at six. Now, what happened after that first week, as I said earlier, was Ukraine survived and they made it through with their bravery and also with like Western and allied help. So once that happens, the conflict fundamentally changed. And my advice is that the average news consumer does not need to be checked in to this exact story every single day. The broad story right now, we're recording this on the 21st, is that Russia repositioned itself away from Kyiv, from the capital of the country, away from central Ukraine, and now they're focused on taking eastern Ukraine. And Mariupol, which is a city in the east, is about to fall. There are 1,500 Ukrainian soldiers who are basically in this factory that has a giant nuclear bunker under it. Um, They are trapped there, but essentially it's impregnable. Um, So the Russians have decided to back down. They're basically just going to attempt to starve them out. But that's the broad story. That's all you need to know. You do not need to check it every single day. What you do need to do is you need to be aware of what the broad American policy is. So the broad American policy, as I think articulated, not okay, not articulated well by Biden. I think my frustration with Biden is I think every single policy decision has been excellent. I think he and his administration, so this isn't just about him being old, have done a horrific job of explaining what's actually happening here. The broad policy is the following. We've launched massive sanctions on Russia, not because we think it's going to cause a revolt and overthrow Putin. I hate when people say that because it shows that they're not actually tuned into what the actual policy is. If you hear a news person say that, it shows that they're frankly not acting in good faith because the first episode I did was with a person who covers financial warfare. And he said, no, no, no. The reason why we're doing the sanctions is because we're trying to destroy the the Russian economy's ability to wage a war of territorial conquest. So already, one of the main Russian tank factories has shut down production because they do not receive the parts they need to do it. They've had to limit their production of anti-aircraft weaponry. That is the purpose of the sanctions policy. Like We are not making any single decision based on the idea that magically you're going to have millions of Russians in the streets. Russians broadly support this war. Um, I think it's complicated whether they're to blame for that. There's obviously like a walled off information sphere, but I think it's also very true that there are very, very, very dangerous ideas that like just just as the American people had a dangerous idea about democracy change during the 2000s, Russians have a ve- have very dangerous, authentically held ideas that they were not like tricked into thinking about whether or not Ukraine is a real country or not. Um, that's a very, very scary thing. So that's part one. So know what we're doing with sanctions. And then two, the Biden policy broadly is, hey, we're not going to put U.S. troops on the ground. That would be too dangerous. That would be too escalatory. But there's a long tradition of countries backing other countries against aggression. So during the Vietnam War, the Chinese and the Soviets gave the North Vietnamese weaponry. They gave them supplies. They gave them weapons. We did the same thing with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets. That is allowed to do under the international system. So we're going to give as much support as we can without crossing that line. It appeared as if last month, MiG-29s and the no-fly zone crossed that line. So Biden very conservatively walked us back from it. So what I'm really trying to get at here is don't worry about like what tactically is happening day to day. You don't need to hit refresh on the New York Times, but be aware of what these dynamics are and be aware of what you base and what you should basically come down to is what do you think US policy should be? Because the last thing I'll add to this is 
because I, I, I like your point about how it seems like we're really bad at long-term thinking. All sorts of really bad things happened during the Cold War. But it's important to note that in 1947-1948, we came up through George Kennan, through all these different people, with a policy which was containment. We're not going to invade the Soviet Union. We're not going to pursue aggressive regime change. We're going to contain them. And we're going to outlast them and win them because the Soviet system had fundamental weaknesses that our democratic capitalist system, despite its various flaws, which you've gotten into, obviously, was superior then. Um, and that will work. That containment policy overreaches. So we have Vietnam, obviously. We overly intervene in the Middle East, like in Iran and Latin America in the 50s and 60s. But broadly speaking, we came up with a long-term sustainable policy that worked. So what's so important about what, what, what what's happening right now, and I hope this comes through in this episode and it comes through in my coverage, is that ideas deeply matter right now. And the idea of, okay, so what is our goal with Russia? Is it regime change? Is it containment? Is it Ukrainian neutrality? Should we let people into NATO? Like there are actually really big debates that matter that are a little separate from the tactical day-to-day parts of it. Yeah, that is is honestly kind of a mind-blowing uh, approach to, to thinking about it that is so simple, right? The idea that there are big, broad ideas, uh, the idea of ideas, but there are these, to your point, tactical headlines, uh, day-to-day things that are happening on the ground. Those are vastly different from our broader thinking, our broader ethos as a country, as a presence, as a global presence. And that is an important distinction to draw and one that I think, in all honesty, I have truthfully failed to to completely understand. I think my default positioning is so often, you know, like social media is rotting our brains, I say, as I'm about to like TikTok this out. Um, it's it's diminishing our, our attention spans. You know, we only have the capacity to understand a few pieces of information at a time. Nobody can see the long term. We are just so obsessed with like the validation, the dopamine of a like of somebody saying like reposting your Instagram story of an infographic, right? But I think I should give people more credit. You know, sure, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok didn't exist during the Cold War, but that doesn't mean that they can't be used as tools today. I think that social media in many ways has changed our approach to understanding long-term stories such as this one. But what if it could be a tool? You know, and, and I think in many ways it has been. My hope today and now in making this episode is that people recognize that that burst of attention that we talked about a few moments ago, that shock of, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that Zelensky, to your point, could be put up against a wall and shot. Like That was insane. That is so outside of our, our understanding right now of what the the world order should look like that of course people would post about it of course there would be this influx of attention that doesn't mean that we can't still be informed a month down the road a month from today 10 months from today i think that that's my biggest takeaway in this conversation right now yeah and look like this goes to the name of like what your brand is now which is like thinking is cool i think to do a plug for why i think you have like a really useful frame here the best thing that you and i can do as non-experts is provide people with frameworks for thinking through this. So like, I think the US default position has to be maximum support with Ukraine, but I understand why people would hold different positions. So what I'm just trying to do with my content is say, look, like if you come up with a different answer than me, like that's okay. I just hope this is like creating a space for you to engage and think about it. So maybe, so for example, like my co-host Sagar, like we once again had a big debate. He thinks that letting Sweden and Finland into NATO is too much of a risk. Um, I think it's actually risky not to let them in to NATO right now. Like those are arguments that could be had both ways. And 
the key thing that people need to really think about is like they should be thinking about those big questions. And that's like that that's the like <laughs> to to say the name, right? That's the like thinking is cool part here. Cause what's actually super unique about this moment is that actually matters, especially especially actually actually in a democracy. Like it actually like it actually matters. It actually mattered that after World War One, the average American's opinion was that it was a mistake to get entangled in Europe in the first place. Let's never do that again. Like that actively played into how we, I think, failed to properly respond to World War II until it was a little late in the game. So everyone, whether you are just like a podcast listener or a college student or a high schooler, you, you actually need to come to an opinion on these bigger questions because that is actually how politicians are going to come up with their exact answers. Because no one's actually making their specific articulations here based on the actual like, okay, so 15 T-72s were destroyed at this cross-section and they were shot down. Well, they were not shot down, but they were destroyed by like, you know, the British anti-take launcher and not the Javelin. That, that, that's what Syria, and you see these people on Twitter. And this is why, this is, by the way, this is why social media is awesome. Like I follow people on social media who get that granular. They're, they'll be like, they'll be like, no, like that obviously wasn't a Javelin because he was so close and the Javelin requires a thousand feet. Like that is so cool. People could do that. But, you don't actually need to be like observing at that level unless you're like addicted to this the way I am. Yeah. And you know, I think what better way to to kind of put a bow around this conversation than by just like understanding that we actually do have a role in this global order, right? That it it can be so easy to adopt this defeatist attitude of like, you know, I vote, but like what really matters beyond that? Why do I need to have an opinion about what's going on in Ukraine or any other country for that matter? But to your point it matters you know like this is this is how public perception is developed and how it evolves and that public perception is direct fuel for the decisions that our leaders are making and i think that no better way to approach these topics to then develop our own perceptions than by just thinking through them with smart people like you marshall one forward-looking thing for people to think about and why this matters is the next possible conflict is a conflict with taiwan and there's a serious debate about what the U.S. should do should China try to take the island by force. And how the U.S. responds to, and I mean the U.S. body politic responds to backing the Ukrainian government is going to shape how the Biden administration, how a Republican administration is going to approach the Taiwan question. So what what happens there matters. Like it really matters that the Ukrainians sunk Russia's flagship um, in the Black Sea um, last week because you know, if China were to invade Taiwan, they'd have to cross 50 miles of ocean, which is actually quite a lot. Um, and it's actually deep, it's actually deeply important that like even like a weak power like Ukraine could destroy a flagship. So this determines like, okay, so should we be giving anti-ship missiles to Taiwan? Should we be flooding things into there that then? Will that deter the Chinese from going? Will they see it as a provocation? Like th- that that is the forward looking thing which one should be focusing on next if they're if, if if you're exhausted by the Ukrainian question. There's always a story that this is going to impact. Um that is just the nature of the world we live in. And I think in some ways can be a little bit daunting, but in others is actually pretty fantastic. There's no way to make a perfect decision. I talk about this all the time, that there's all sorts of future paths that can unfold in front of us. The only paths that 
we know that we can utilize to make decisions today is what has happened in the past. We have to utilize that information and that context as best we can. We have to think through the implications of our actions, but that past perception is going to be important in making the best perfect decisions to, you know, what is the the idea of the more perfect future is informed by the past. So we have to keep that uh, in mind. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Marshall, thank you. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. I know you have about 47 other podcasts to record today, so I will let you go. But thank you again for stopping by and for thinking through this with me. Yeah, thanks for having me.